This is Comic Shenanigans, episode 990, A Conversation with John Morrow. Welcome to the Comic Shenanigans Podcast. I'm your host, Adam Chapman. This is episode 990. We're 10 episodes away from our last episode, which will be episode 1000, coming out on the 10th anniversary of the show on August the 12th, 2022. This is a very special episode as I got to sit down with John Morrow uh, of uh, Two Morrows Publishing to talk about the Jack Kirby Collector, Back Issue Magazine, uh, what, it, what it means to be a publisher in, uh, in the comic book field, uh, creating you know historical documents, books, magazines, etc., uh, all things that add to the historical record. Um, I really enjoyed this conversation with John. It was a tremendous pleasure to be able to sit down with him, pick his brain about things, uh, ask him questions. Uh, we also had some listener questions as well, which I wanted to uh, mention. I didn't mention their names on the actual episode, but I want to thank people from the Marvel Masterworks Forum for asking questions. We had questions from Gay Archer, uh, DJ Way, uh, let's see, Steve Coates, uh, Mr. Articulate, uh, Silver Age Marvel Man, um, and Brian Wells. So, again, thank you so much to everyone who contributed questions. It was very much appreciated. Um, again, it was just, just, just such a pleasure to talk with John. I've enjoyed, um, you know, the output from his, uh, you know, his publisher or his well, his, I don't know what the word is, his company. Uh, his company's put out some tremendous books and magazines throughout the last, what, 28 years, and so and they continue to do so, and they show no sign of that abating. So um, I'm really excited to present this episode with John Morrow. Before I do so, I do want to uh, quickly mention that if you want to email us, you can email me at comicshenanigans at gmail.com, rate the show on iTunes, subscribe to us on iTunes, and also listen to us on Stitcher. Um, if you do want to have uh, one of your comments read on the show, you should probably get it in before episode 1000, uh, so I can make sure to read it on the air. Uh, thank you to everyone who supported the show and listened to the show over the years, um, and if you're new to the uh, show because you just want to hear John Morrow speak, uh, you should check out some uh, some of our you know quote-unquote back issues. Uh, we recently had an episode with Michael Yuri who um, is the editor-in-chief of Back Issue Magazine that's published by Tomorrow's. Uh, in a year or two ago, we did have a conversation with uh, Keith Dallas, who has also worked on numerous projects for uh, John over the years, and we actually mentioned them throughout the episode as well. So um, if you're new to the uh, new to the show, you should check out the, uh, the extensive back catalog. There's, you know, 989 other episodes uh, that you can kind of feast your, uh, your teeth into. Uh, some great creative interviews. Uh, the creative interviews really start around issue Sorry, episode 250 or so and they move forward from there so uh, you should definitely do so anyways without further ado i'm going to stop my preamble and my rambling uh, uh, com- uh comments and just jump right into the conversation so sit back relax and you're going to have an hour and a half of conversation between myself and the uh the head of tomorrow's publishing john morrow enjoy john welcome to the comic shenanigans podcast where are you today well thanks adam it's a pleasure to be here I'm uh, very psyched to have you on. Um, your company, or your publishing company, has put together so many amazing magazines and books that are really some of the, the greatest historical records I think we have of so much of the comic industry. So just as a fan, I want to say thank you. Well, you're very welcome. And, uh, you know, thanks to everybody that's been, gosh, we started in 1994, 
So that's almost... Uh, duh, duh, duh. How many years is that? 28. Please don't tell me that's... <laughs> okay, I was going to say... I was hoping it wasn't almost 40. I was going with almost 30, surely. We surely am not that old, but... Um, but no, it's great. We, you know, we, I, I'm very blessed to work with a lot of great professionals putting these publications together, and um, it's it's kind of it's kind of neat how we ended up. Uh, I always wanted to be a I always wanted to be a comic book artist. Never was quite good enough to, to uh, ever make that break. So I never thought I'd actually work in the comics industry. But here I am, almost thirty years what thirty years later, and um, you know I'm, I'm getting to work with a professional, you know, comics. Comics pros, comics people, mm-hmm. um, guys like Roy Thomas, who I grew up reading Roy's work. You know, For sure. uh, Michael Yuri, Michael Yuri on Back Issue Magazine, a retro fan is a, he's a remarkable editor. And he he worked for what, DC, um, Dark Horse, uh, a few other companies over the years as well. So, um, you know, I worked and gosh, Danny Fingeroth, great Marvel writer mm-hmm. and editor, uh, worked with him. Mike Manley, a fantastic artist. Um, gosh, Bob McLeod, wonderful artist and inker. Um, and that's just the tip of the iceberg of the the pros I've got. I've been blessed to work with all these years. So for sure, you know, I'm, I, I, it really has been kind of a dream come true. But I'm sorry, I didn't mean to interrupt you. I, you probably have some questions. <laughs> no, no, I mean that's good. I, I want to say so again. Just speaking as a fan for a second. Um, one of the I, and I've, I've I've said this to the writer, and I, I don't mean this as a slight in any way. One of the most niche comic book history or um, books that you guys put out that I absolutely loved and adored was uh, the comic book Complosion by uh, oh. <laughs> by Keith Keith Well sorry Keith Dallas and John Wells because I mean I'm I, I make no bones I was born in '83 long after the implosion but I'd always heard about it and so being able to read something like the exhaustively researched book that uh, again was put put up by your company I absolutely adored that book so again it was so niche and it was such an interesting period and so I'm just glad that you guys put out a book like that because I can't imagine what the audience might be but I I I absolutely ate it up. Well, I was a uh, probably 15 years old or 16 when the whole DC explosion happened, which was the precursor to the implosion, and uh, DC expanded that, that whole line of books. So I was, you know, I was just a teenage kid buying them off the stands and loving all that stuff. Uh, <laughs> some of them weren't the greatest quality because they were cranking out so much material, but they were all fun and and some great combinations of uh, main stories and backups in those books. And then all of a sudden, wow, bam, there they all went. Um, so having lived through that, when Keith Dallas said he and John wanted to do a book on the history of the implosion, I was like, okay, let's go right now. Uh, <laughs> if you got it written, we'll, we'll publish it next month. Let's go. Um, so, uh, yeah, yeah, that was very near and dear to my heart. And, and they, they dug up so much information on it I didn't already know. Um, I had a friend, my old buddy Bill Alger, who actually had a copy of uh, – it's called Cancelled Comic Cavalcade, which wow. – uh, if you, you sound like you know what that is, mm-hmm. um, the DC made thirty copies of this two volume bound, fo- badly photocopied set of all of the uh, implosion uh, material that didn't get published. That was already produced, but when all the DC books got canceled, they, they never made it in. And uh, my friend Bill had a had a copy, one of the thirty copies of the uh, um, Cancel Comic Cavalcade, and I was blown away that he had that thing. And uh, you know, it was so much fun pouring through there and, and seeing all this stuff. You know, an unused issue of Vixen, which was, you know, I, I was like, what is this? You know? Um, <laughs> so, uh, and, and Keith and John are kind of in my age bracket, too. We're like late, late 50s. So uh, this was, you know, this this was really near and dear to all of us. So, um, 
and that book did really well. It was it was very well received, and uh, I guess you know that's kind of our core audience, guys around my age, probably in their mostly in their fifties. But some skew a little older than that, some skew a little younger, but that's kind of our, our basic audience. I mean, I, I've always been a fan of anything comic history, and so I, f- I feel like I'm like tailor made to be your audience, even though I'm younger than maybe your primary demographic generally, because I'm only like in my 30s. But um, I just find the the, oh. the material you guys put out is so phenomenal, and it really well, opens my eyes. And one thing I actually I want to say as well, again speaking as a fan, but before I kind of put on my interviewer hat, is um, I loved Stuff Said. It was such a um, oh, a be- wonderful book, but so fascinating in terms of how you were kind of again, you know, kind of you know, just let the two men's words, and this is Stanley and Jack Kirby we're talking about, kind of um, all their words from all the different interviews throughout the years, and finding a way to kind of put them in a linear format so that you can kind of see how their thinking evolved, etc. It was such a um, enormously entertaining, but also really informative view just on how memory changes and how people's perspectives change, and it was just such a, a wonderful book. So I really want to thank you for that because I remember reading that at the cottage a few years ago and I was just being blown away by it. So again, I really appreciate that just as a fan. Well, thank you. That, that book was the most labor intensive project I have ever personally been involved in. And that includes anything we ever did with our advertising work. And we did a lot of, um, you know, swing set catalogs and annual reports and things like that, that, that take a good while to produce. But that book, just the sheer research on it, I probably I think I spent six months doing nothing but just research on it, and uh, <laughs> so any uh, I, I forget which years that was I was working on, but anybody that didn't get their order shipped out or in a timely manner, that was probably why because <laughs> <laughs> I, I was so consumed with that, making sure things were running around here for that period was kind of touch and go. So, um, but uh, yeah, that's oh that I, I'm really proud of that book, and I, I hope it kind of enlightens some people about the relationship between Kirby and Lee and. Uh, the ups and downs of it, and um, you know, there, there's a lot of controversy uh, in talking about those two guys. Mm-hmm. And of course, I am firmly planted on the Kirby side, so I, it was a challenge for me to try to be as, um, you know, a, as fair and impartial as as I conceivably could in a book about the conflict between Stanley and Jack Kirby. So, um, going back and rereading it, you know, here a couple years later, I, I think I did okay. Um, you know, but I think my Kirby partisanship probably shone through. But also, Stan Lee was more verbose and did more interviews, so he has a lot more of his own words and print in that book. So maybe that kind of balances out. I don't know. But no. In any case, I'm glad it was a, a good experience for you to read it. I do have a question, though, just because I have the original printing, and I know that there was multiple reprintings where there was more content added. How much am I missing out on? Um, you know, a couple of extremely obscure interviews – with both men popped up after I put that out. Um, people read the book and they're like, oh, hey, wait, you missed this from this 1967 fanzine <laughs> that only had, you know, 15 mimeograph copies. And it's a, you know, a, a letter from Stanley answering my questions when I mailed it to Marvel or something. And, uh, <laughs> you know, it, it's, it's minutiae, but that book is all about minutiae. So oh, for sure. um, and we worked it in. There were a couple of errors that we fixed. It wasn't anything you know, major or egregious or anything. But um, it's just a little tighter package with a little bit of extra content. I think we added 16 pages to it. Mm. Um, but a lot of that was, um, yeah, a few images that we came across that helped support the text. Mm. Um, and then just, you know, obscure little tidbits of information that 
Um, I, I don't think there was anything like earth shattering in the new material, if that's what you're asking. Okay. Um, but just, you know, it's nice that it had a little extra material. So. What, what blew me away, just not just stuff said, but also going back to comic book complosion, is again, as you said, like how much minutia you guys were able to find. And <laughs> I, it, it made me like really wonder about this, how detailed the, the research would have had to have been for both projects. And you've already said it's very labor intensive, but like on the comic book implosion, the amount of fanzines and the amount of like obscure interviews that were pulled out and that helped create this narrative was fascinating. And I, and I remember talking to Keith about it and being like, it just, I, again, I can't even imagine how you even found this stuff. And especially going back to your project on stuff said, you know, finding those obscure interviews here and there um, is just, again, it's fascinating because you, you, you always hear about, you know the the fanzines that existed, you know, in the '60s and '70s. But seeing them all so well documented is really something. Well, you know, John Wells was an incredible resource for that type of material. He has a great collection of things and knows where to find things. So um, that helped immensely, I'm sure, with his and Keith's research. As far as the these oddball interviews for Lee and Kirby from Stuff Said, that was a little trickier because you know once you get into the '70s, the fanzines are, are getting more, they're coming into their own and. They're printing more copies, and they're not as obscure and rare and hard to find. Mm. But some of these 60s fanzines literally were 15 mimeographed copies that some fan did, you know, reprinting a letter that Stan Lee sent them in in response to something they sent him. Um, Or, you know, they went to Jack Kirby's um, kid's bar mitzvah or something and and happened to meet him and then wrote up the the experience. And there might be a little tiny, you know, tidbit of minutia in there that applies to the discussion of Lee and Kirby. So... um, yeah, it, it, the the sixty stuff was is much more challenging to track down. But you know, this is the prime time to do it. The the fans that were, you know, y- young, um, ten years old teenagers in the sixties and getting these fanzines. Unfortunately, they're starting to age out now. And I'm not I'm not a senior citizen yet. But you know, I came up really in the, more or less in the early seventies. Um, so I got a ten year, you know, lead on them in terms of. Uh, you know, being young and <laughs> being younger, and you know those guys are they, unfortunately they're aging out, and we're, we're losing them um, sadly. And thankfully, I'm glad we're able to kind of get some of this stuff. We, we're not documenting it for the first time because it was in those fanzines, but we're redocumenting it, hopefully a little more for posterity. Mm-hmm. Um, one one big loss for us, a, a gentleman named Bill Shelley, who was a friend of ours and um, also worked. Worked with Roy Thomas on Alter Ego, and, and Bill also had his own Hamster Press uh, publishing line of uh, of collections of old fanzines, um, books about the, the, the truly the golden age of comics fandom, which was late fifties, early sixties, when you know there was no comics fandom. It was just a bunch of fans getting together. Mm-hmm. Uh, there was no organized thing, and it kind of all evolved from that. And Bill, Bill was just you know he was the best guy, and just so knew his stuff and had such a deep collection of his own fanzines and things um, and that, that was a big loss when, when Bill passed on mm. uh, and you know we, we, we all will do well to follow Bill's footsteps and just try to you know, do what he did document this stuff before it's before it vanishes so mm. but uh, I'm, I'm glad I'm really proud we're having an opportunity to do this and hopefully our stuff will stick around we've got the advantage that we're doing digital editions of everything we publish and print so long after the print copies, like Comic Book Implosion is sold out, unfortunately. But, um, you know, there's a digital edition available. So anybody who's reading right now can, for a very minimal price, can go on and read the book if they don't mind reading it on their iPad or their mm-hmm. computer screen. So, um, And hopefully that will 
the digital media will stand the test of time. And, you know, who knows? We're, you know, 50 years from now, 100 years from now, we may all have chips in our brains and be reading things <laughs> by blinking our eyes. I don't think, I don't know. But um, uh, at least I, I think comics history is, I mean, we're doing our part to make sure that people aren't going to forget this stuff, regardless of what media or format they read it in mm-hmm. down the line. Like my my first uh, I, I again I was saying I, I love comic book implosion. I first read it digitally because I kind of missed out in that initial print run. And I remember actually talking to Keith, and he's like, "Well, I might have one." And I'm like, oh, "That'd be great if you have one." So I, do, I actually do have a signed copy from Keith because he he had one copy left over. He's like, "Well, I could send it to him." I'm like, "Yeah, whatever it costs. Like, I'll I'll pay for it. Like, I already own this digitally, but I just want to have it on my shelf. I want to be able to give it to people. Uh, I only may I may only have a few people who would actually be interested in this, but it's again such a uh, a treasure trove." For information um you speak to about you know the fact that your you know your publishing company has been so much about comic book history and i'm curious about you know obviously when the company starts and you're doing the jack kirby collector when did you kind of think that you know we're gonna we're gonna expand beyond you know this magazine about about jack and we're, we're really get into really creating and help documenting the history of comics because so many of your magazines help to do this you now also have you know the the comic book history chronicles as well or I'm, I'm butchering the name. I forget the exact title, but you know, you guys have done so much for the field of comic book history and really documenting it. When did that really kind of jump into your mind as where your publishing company was going to go? And and I guess also the question is, what made you think let's let's preserve Jack Kirby's legacy first? Well, okay, um, that's a lot all at once. <laughs> that is okay. Well, I can. I think I can sum this up in, in fairly short order. Um, the whole idea of the Jack Kirby Collector came about because uh, my my best friend growing up um, faxed me the clipping from USA Today of Jack Kirby's obituary. It was this nice little quarter page thing uh, that USA Today ran uh, when Jack died. I had been out of comics at that point in like 1988. I sold almost all of my comics. I was newly married. We were trying to save for a house and for our first house and. Um, so I sold off almost all my comics to get the money for a down payment on our house. And I only saved a few of the stuff I loved the most, and that was like a handful of Neil Adams books and probably maybe a couple hundred of Jack Kirby books. And it was all the Fourth World stuff, all the New Gods, you know, Mr. Miracle Forever, people, Jimmy Olsen. Um, those were near and dear to me. Uh, you know, little knowing that one day I would have a reuse for all of those books that I got rid of and I'd end up having to rebuy them all. But um, uh, so... Uh, but 88, I got out of comics. That was it. In 91, we had a business opportunity to go West Coast, and I always wanted to go to San Diego Comic-Con and meet Jack Kirby. That was my lifelong goal, and, you know, as a teenager, we couldn't afford that. And even as a young adult, it's like, that that's still way out of our, our budget because we're East Coast, and that's West Coast. But uh, uh, an opportunity came up to be out in Los Angeles at the same week Comic-Con was going on. So... Uh, we went out there, my wife and I, and just drove down for the day to Comic-Con. I got to go in. I got to meet Kirby for like five minutes, shake his hand, tell him how amazing he is. And uh, and my life was complete, and that was it. And I thought I was done. And then in 94, that obituary came through my fax machine. I'm like, oh, Jack Kirby, gosh, he died. That's sad. And I thought, well, you know, let me grab those old Kirby comics and, and read them, uh, the ones that I, I didn't get rid of. And I, and I read through them all, and I'm like, man... We were, we were starting our advertising agency, and I thought, surely Jack's still got plenty of fans out there. I thought, let me do up a little a little newsletter. I didn't even really know what a fanzine was at that point. I hadn't seen the 60s fanzines that were mimeographed and things. So I was just 
doing it based on what I thought we kind of based on newsletters we were doing some for some of our advertising clients. Um, I did it and I found uh, a recent issue of Comics Buyer's Guide. I was pleasantly surprised that that was still being published at the time. Everybody wrote these nice tribute letters in about Kirby's passing and they printed the addresses. So I built a mailing list of 125 people from CVG and just sent them all a free copy of this little 16 page Jack Kirby newsletter that I did. And um, yeah, I figured I'd get a few responses. And at the end of the, of the issue, you know, I ran some of my stuff I had in my collection. And uh, at the end of the page, I said, hey, okay, so that's all my stuff. If you have anything, send it and I'll do another issue. Well, stuff started coming in, so I did a second issue, and then more stuff started coming in. So I would end up, I would end up photocopy a hundred copies at a time, feeding dimes into the copy machine at our local drugstore, <laughs> and then people would order those, and I'd have, well, I guess I better do another hundred, and so I'd stand there for half a day feeding dimes in the Xerox machine at the drugstore, and you know it was all very much by the seat of my pants. There was no master plan to do a be doing this in 30 years or to be doing books and other magazines and things i mean it was just all about paying tribute to jack kirby and um issue six of the kirby collector was my moment i said you know what i'm spending too much of my life standing at a copy machine feeding dimes in <laughs> and i said okay we don't have a lot of money but i'm going to spring to commercially print issue six and i'm going to make it this may be the last one i ever do but it's going to be about the fourth world uh dc stuff that kirby did and I'm going to get to the bottom of what was going to happen when it, before it got canceled, how Jack was going to end it, and um, make it the best thing I've ever done, and and make it double size. So, and we're just going to bite the bullet and hope we don't lose our shirts on it. And um, that one did fabulously well, um, and it was so satisfying to do for me personally because the Fourth World was my my favorite Kirby stuff of all time, and to find out all the behind the scenes stuff and interview Mark Evanier and Steve Sherman and other people that worked with Jack on it. It was great. And um, after that, a couple issues later, I said, well, what is it? How do you get this stuff in comic book stores? So I had to do a little research on that and said, okay, well, let's just see if it would sell in a comic book store. Um, so issue eight, we, we sprung for a color front cover only because color separations were so expensive to get back then. Mm. So we only printed the, the front cover in color. The rest of the book was black and white and sold it through comic book stores. And lo and behold, it just kind of took off. Um, and from there, I forget what issue, I think issue 18 or so, um, my good friend John B. Cook jumped on board and said, hey, i got to be your assistant editor. I'll do whatever you want. I'll, I'll write articles for it. And so through that relationship forming with John, we became good friends. And we finally got to a point where we were talking and we decided we needed to do a Jack Kirby collector about all the other artists. And that's how our second magazine, Comic Book Artist, came about. And John spearheaded that and just did an amazing job on it, won all kind of awards with it. Um, and from there, uh, John and I have differing recollections of how we hooked up with Roy Thomas. Um, John says it was my idea. I say it was John's idea, so I guess that's good <laughs> that we're giving each other credit instead of taking it for ourselves. But um, I, I think we finally proved it was my idea, but then John ran with it or something. I, I forget exactly, but... Uh, Roy came on board and did a flip side short section of each issue of Comic Artist with an alter ego section. And that was pretty popular. And I said, hey, let's spin this off into a third magazine called Alter Ego. And that, that did well. And then from there, Roy wanted to do a book about the history of the Justice Society. I'm like, well, we've never done a book, but why not? <laughs> and things just, you know, from there, then other people came on board. 
um, you know, and we just started expanding, uh, doing a lot of books and uh, new magazines. And then we had <laughs> my good friend Joe Mino called me up one day and said he's been doing this online-only Lego magazine uh, <laughs> for, for adult Lego builders. And I'm like, there are adult Lego builders? And he said, oh, yes, you have no idea. Uh, and I had no idea until he clued me in and I saw just how big a market that is. And um, so I, I told him, I said, you know, he, he, I took him to lunch and he was picking my brain because he wanted to get it into print and into stores and stuff. So I told him what I knew. And at the end of our lunch, I said, hey, if you decide this is too big a thing for you, let me know. And I'll look into it and see maybe it makes sense for us to publish it. Well, that ended up happening. So we had a Lego magazine and that led to books about Lego. And now we're doing a lot of pop culture stuff with Retrofan Magazine and a lot of books that aren't strictly comics related, but they're pop culture related. So, um, But it wasn't a, this big master plan. It just kind of evolved over time. But it all started with Jack Kirby and all of his wonderful, generous fans that sent in their stuff so I could do a second issue of the Jack Kirby Collector and a third issue. Mm-hmm. And, you know, and, and it just, it, that's the beautiful thing about the comics industry. The fans are far and away the best people uh, across the board um, it, it's hard to find a bad apple of true comics fans mm-hmm. um, that you know they, they, I'm not talking about speculators that just buy books so they can slab it and turn around and make a profit I'm talking about the true fans mm-hmm. they're just the salt of the earth and just the best people to hang out with and be associated with and that's we, we built our company on that foundation of comics fandom and how generous everybody is with each other so um, and I try to I try to convey that in what we do as well um, we don't do price gouging and um, y- you know we could print like 12 special edition covers of everything and <laughs> yeah, try, try to milk it for all the money we can get out of it and uh, you know maybe I should have now that I'm about to have a second child in college that could come in handy but you know <laughs> um, I don't think we would have built the, the goodwill that we have um and I'm not, I mean, I'm not going to be modest. We have some wonderful goodwill that we build over the years with all the fine people we've worked with. And that's how we've lasted this long. So, mm-hmm. um, so there we go. There's an extremely long winded answer to your question. I hope it answered it. It did. No, it was very good, quite a very good answer. Now I, I have to ask, like, what was it like? Cause I know that on the earliest Jack Kirby collectors, you know, you have that kind of authorized by the, the, the estate of Jack Kirby. How did that really kind of come about? And what was that like? Getting well, that kind of that that blessing from the estate because that's that's a pretty big deal. It was deal. awesome. It was fabulous. It, that one meeting at Comic Con that was nineteen ninety one, and I just got to meet Kirby and shake his hand. Um, and but I overheard him talking to I don't remember who it was. I don't think it was Julie Schwartz, but it was someone of that generation who was at the booth when I finished talking to him. He came over and uh, talking, oh, well, you should come up and visit me at the house. I live on Sapper Street in Thousand Oaks. California. Um, here, I'll give you the address. And I'm like, I made a mental Thousand Oaks, Sapper Street, okay. <laughs> and the next day, before we had to go back to the airport, I, we drove over to the Beverly Hills Library, because this was pre-internet, and um, ran in the library and looked at the phone books for uh, Thousand Oaks, because you know, the libraries had all the phone books back then, mm-hmm. and looked up uh, Kirby, comma, Jack, Sapper Street, Thousand Oaks, and I got this, I saw the street number, and got a map and figured out where it was. I thought, I've got, to, I've got to go see Jack Kirby's house. I know it sounds like I was stalking him. <laughs> but, um, you know, and, and got his phone number and jotted it down. And so my wife in tow, we drove up to Thousand Oaks up this beautiful hill where his house was and 
so it just kind of drove by the front of the house. I didn't have the nerve. I should have. That would have been awesome. After all the stories I know now, <laughs> they would have invited us in and would have fed us lunch and let us swim in the pool and see all of his art. But I didn't have the, the nerve to, to knock on the door like so many other fans did. Um, we went our way. And then when he passed away, I still had that note with the address. And, and when I did, decided to try doing a little newsletter, yeah, I mocked up a sample of it and I mailed it to his wonderful wife, Roz, because I still had that address. And uh, asked how she would feel about, you know, if we did this. And um, she sent back this note saying, this is wonderful, great, we'd love for you to do it. Um, I'll even put you in touch with some people that might help, might be able to help provide some material for it or whatever. And um, so, and from there, I got to know Roz, which was just a wonderful experience. She was a delightful lady. And um, boy, I tell you what, she, I can, she was the perfect uh, mate for Jack because anyone could probably have taken advantage of Jack Kirby because he was just so nice. He couldn't say no to anybody. And Roz was kind of the gatekeeper. And um, at conventions or on the phone or at their house or whatever, because people came to them with some of the most cockamamie <laughs> ideas that they wanted to get involved in. And uh, she, she kind of, you know, narrowed the, uh, she weeded out the, the really crazy ones, I guess. But, um, but you know, that's a, that's a great testament to what nice people they were. She was totally trusting. She didn't know me from Adam. And out of the blue, I'm sending this thing to her and asking for her okay to do it. And she said, sure, go ahead. And, um, yeah, they were very, very trusting people and very kind. And, you know, it, that, that may have worked against them in some instances. But I think overall, I mean, Jack just has that. The goodwill we have at Tomorrow's is largely because of the goodwill Jack Kirby had mm. and our association with him. So, yeah, being able to say that we're authorized by the Kirby State to do this, that was a big thing um, for me anyway. I think it just gave us some legitimacy. And, um, you know, it's, it's not like uh, it's not like it wouldn't have been a good magazine without that little stamp of approval. But uh, it just was a nice little extra. And let everybody know we're not going to be someone who's going to take advantage of the Kirby's mm. the way a lot of people did, unfortunately. And um, so, you know, it was it was uh, – it was great getting to know Roz, I've got to say. I, I wish she had lived even longer than she did after Jack passed, but it was it was an honor. I did finally get to go up to the house a couple times and um, see, the, see the artwork, man. They, they She kept it so wonderfully. It was like a little mini Jack Kirby art gallery of pieces of art that you would only see if you came to their house. They'd never been published, and they were just some amazing, gigantic pieces that Jack did and had framed on their walls in the house. So... Um, you know, just just I have such great memories of that, and um, and the family even still today. They're they're just they're just great people and great people to work with. Um, we're <laughs> I just pitched a a, a new project um, that needed the Kirby's involvement, and they're like, "Yep, let's do it, sure." So um, I, I'm I've got to get one more signature sign before I can officially announce what it is. But <laughs> I kind of I kind of teased it in my latest Kirby Collector to see if anybody would would uh, be excited by it. And I got a lot of response. So, um, Oh, I'll tell you what it is. It's a destroyer duck graphite edition. Um, it's the entire five issues of destroyer duck that Jack Kirby drew, but all reproduced from his pencil art instead of from the inked oh, wow. color. art. So, um, anyway, uh, so it's, uh, D- destroyer duck was an interesting piece of Jack Kirby history as well. So we'll, we'll be documenting the, uh, the history behind that series as well. Uh, in the book that we're doing, so but, wow. um, that's pretty cool. 
No, yeah. I, I have to ask then. So, I mean, because you mentioned that 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 meeting at the at that convention with with Jack. I mean, obviously it was probably pretty brief, but obviously meant a lot to you. What was that like just to being able to see someone who had done so much impactful work that obviously meant a lot to you and be able to say, you know, thank you. Like, what was that? Well, what was that like for you personally? I hope everybody gets that opportunity in their lives to meet someone that they've always idolized. And because there's no other word for it. I, I always idolized Jack Kirby. I loved his work. Even the work of his that I didn't like as much as others, there was still always some this weird intrinsic just wonderfulness about it, and um, and always I mean ever since I first discovered his work, which the first time I saw his work I hated it, square <laughs> fingers, square knees, you know, all the women had the same shape and all the guys had the same blonde hair, and it was just like this guy can't draw very well. What's that? But the first time I read a story with Jack Kirby, by the end of it I was hooked. It's just like, wow, I got to get some more of this. <laughs> so, you know, and and within two or three Jack Kirby stories, all of a sudden I was a fan of the art, too. And, you know, so I just idolized him ever since my first story, which I probably saw when I was 13 or 14. Um, and to finally get to meet your idol and for them not to disappoint you, that's what I hope everybody has an opportunity to do for whoever it is that they've always looked up to and and, and thought they did great things. To actually get to meet them and shake their hands and talk to them. And, and that was the thing. Kirby, at that little brief meeting, lasted five minutes or less. You know, he, he, he wanted to talk to me. He wanted to find out who I was, what I did for a living, where I was from. He, he wasn't, his ego was not an issue for him. He, he, didn't, he didn't need the praise that we were heaping on him. I'm sure he enjoyed it. But um, he, he very much, he was a people person. He wanted to know about everybody else. And, and really enjoyed that. So I probably spent as much time telling him about life as I did telling him how much I appreciated his life. Hmm. And that, that is a very common thread of just about everybody I know who's ever met Jack. So, um, you know, he, he's just, just a great, great guy. And the testament to that is that here it is almost 30 years after um, he died and... T- we're still doing a magazine about him. Issue number uh, eighty-four is on the way back from the printer now, and I gotta I gotta get busy on issue number eighty-five soon. <laughs> um, so you know, eighty-five issues about the same guy um, after he's passed on is pretty amazing. That's quite a legacy that there's still a market for it. So, um, so it's a testament to his talent, but also to his humanity, I think. And so yeah, but that that was you know I look back on that meeting. Wow, my life really would not have been the same if I had not had that that chance opportunity to meet him. So, mm-hmm. so I and that kind of uh, idea of kind of you know being able to talk to these you know these these legends these people and then obviously you know then they pass away and then so you've done various books on these you know some of these fantastic artists etc who unfortunately have now left us and like i have a similar type of feeling where i've had some great interviews that i've had over the last 10 years and then you know that person that I interviewed passes away and it's a sudden, like it's a Justin Ponser or a Norm Brayfogel or someone like that. And obviously with your books, like you have, you know, Michael Ringo, you have George Perez, et cetera. Um, what does that, how does that impact you? Or how do you feel about the work you guys have done to kind of document some of these people's work and then they pass away? How do you then interact with that feeling of, of loss to the industry? Like how does, what does that mean to you? Well, and John Cook is, is supremely focused on, and has been since I first met him on the whole idea that 
we got to get these people on the record because they're not going to be here forever. Mm-hmm. That has been a, been a, a strong pull for John Cook doing all of his work all these years. Um, and like you just said, unfortunately, I mean, every every year we lose more, and it's really accelerating lately, unfortunately. I mean, we've lost – God, this has been such a bad year. George Perez, Neil Adams, and Tim Sale, who mm-hmm. – that really surprised me because he's not even in that same – I mean, that's three different generations, I would think. Uh, Neil was the oldest, then George would be next, maybe 10 years his junior, and then Tim Sale was probably 10 years George's George's junior. So, you know, I, I'm just I'm thrilled that we've still got guys like Roy Thomas, who's mm-hmm. in his mid-80s now and still going strong. I mean, uh, Roy's made us some stern stuff, and he, he's going to be around a while, I, I certainly hope, um, and do, continue to do great work. Roy's still just sharp as a tack, and um, just, just as feisty and opinionated as he's ever been so, and a lot of fun to work with um, but, but yeah it's like I, I know we did an issue of Alter Ego on Bob Oxner who is I think one of the unsung brilliant artists of comics history um, and he passed away right before it was published Oof. which made me very sad the, the worst one was uh, Herb Trimpey hmm. um uh, Dewey Cassell and uh, Aaron Sultan did this great biography of Herb Trimpey that we published and got it together. Herb did see it. He saw the proofs. So I know he got to see the book, but it was like right before he passed away. And that came as a total shock. No one was expecting Herb Trimpey to pass away when he did. Um, and um, so, yeah, so he, he he signed off on it. It all looks great, guys. And, and then we sent it to the printer, and while it was being printed, he passed away, unfortunately. So... Um, but at least he got to see it beforehand. Uh, and and that, that's, you know, uh, it's very unfortunate that the timing is what it is. But at least we've gotten so many people before they have passed away. And that, that makes me very proud and, and very happy. Uh, and I know that makes John Cook extremely happy because he's <laughs> kind of devoted his whole life to that. And um, uh, as, as we're both getting older, uh, we talk about that quite a bit. And, uh, you know, the... the, the you know, Neil Adams was one of the young guys. He was the young one, of the, the young Turk, right? Mm-hmm. Um, we, it's hard to think of Neil and Roy as being in their 80s uh, or of passing away. They just seem forever young and like they'll be around forever. And as we've seen with Neil, unfortunately, uh, everybody has time, unfortunately. So, um, but it's interesting because we have not really heavily delved yet in the, the top creators of the 1990s as much as we have we're starting to do a little bit more of that with back back issue magazine um and i think it's just a natural progression of time it's time to do that now because when we started comic book artists um cover we did one issue on the 80s and i was very hesitant to do it because i think it's not that this was in the what 1995 or 96 we were doing that i guess hmm. 96 we were doing uh comic book artists and we were focusing on comics of the 60s and 70s strictly, and John wanted to do an issue on 80s comics. At that point, I did not think 80s comics were old enough to be like nostalgia and, and need that kind of historical coverage yet. Um, John convinced me to do it, and we did an issue on the 80s. It did not sell very well. Um, so uh, we, we, we realized yeah, it wasn't time yet. Then we started Back Issue magazine focusing on the 70s and the 80s, right? And now it's slowly getting into the 90s. So... Um, you know, another 10 years from now, I guess we'll be focusing on the, the comics creators of the early 2000s more than we are now. So, um, you know, and 
somebody's going to have to take the torch from us at some point because we're not going to be around forever. But um, I, I think I got another good 10, 15, 20 years in me easy. So um, uh, as long as you guys keep reading them. And I'm so heartened to hear that you're in your 30s and enjoy our material because the first time our, my friend Chris Irving contacted me, I, I didn't know Chris at the point at that point. And I think I met him at a convention at our booth. And I'm like, this guy's got to be in his 20s or something. He looks very young. <laughs> and he's spouting all this comics history. And I'm like, man, I'm impressed that somebody this young knows as much about the stuff that I grew up with when I'm like 20 years older than him. And Chris has gone on to do some great stuff. We're actually working on a new book with him right now as well. Um, and he's done a lot of great material on his own. He even worked full-time for us for a couple of years. And... Um, you know, so to hear that you're in your 30s gives me hope that, yeah, our, our stuff is important beyond just us old guys that care about <laughs> it. The young guys will one day be old guys and hopefully still care about it. So well, for sure. Um, so good job and good job with this 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 uh, podcast. I cannot believe you've been doing this for 10 years. That's amazing. Yeah, I, I mean, I, I remember I uh, when I first started it, I was just kind of listening and, I, I you know, people were doing podcasts about comics. And I was like, well, I could do that. Um, and it's funny, it, it took about two and a half years because it had never really picked up the way I was hoping it would. Um, but then I started listening to some interview podcasts, people talking to comic professionals. And I was like, well, I, I think I could do that. Um, but I didn't know how. And so I would just kind of, you know, reach out to people on, you know, multiple social medias, that kind of thing. And then it picked up and I was able to actually get in touch with people. And um, I just, you know, I was really surprised it started working and wasn't sure how it was going to keep working out. And it just kept working and happening and getting people on the show. And people would say yes. And I learned that you really just have to be willing to ask. And um, it, it, it reminds me of that. I remember hearing a joke before that people joked about how, you know, people were comic book famous, but that didn't make them real famous. And, you know, as a comic book fan, there are people who are definitely comic book famous and i'd be very you know i had a friend who asked me like do you get nervous before your interviews and i'm like every time i've done 200 of them it doesn't matter um every time i get nervous i get you know i get uh, butterflies in my stomach i'm like oh my god i'm going to talk to someone who's done something that mattered to me um how do i talk to this person and then i get going and everything's fine it reminds me of that you know that line from uh, the first x-men movie when you know rogue asks wolverine if it hurts when his claws come out and he's like every time I'm like that's how i feel every time i get nervous and then every time i have a chat and you know it just goes well but um yeah i mean and that's what i love about your you know your books and your magazines is being able to like learn more like i love learning more about history and, and comics and like I, when people talk about how you know these, this is a hard time to jump into comics because comics are confusing, and I'm like, I jumped in in the mid '90s. You could not find a more confusing time to read comics <laughs> than in the mid '90s, and I picked it up just fine. And what I loved about it was um, the, the sense of history. Of you'd read a book, and I miss editor's notes for this reason because I'd be like, oh, something happened before, and they're referencing it. Maybe I can read that someday, and I love that. And so being able to pour over your magazines and about comics I've never heard of but wanted to or characters and then or creators names who have kind of heard it before and then being able to you know really uh delve into the spotlight on them and then i love the um the american comic book chronicles books and when i was talking to keith about it, he's like oh we're gonna do a 2000s one i'm like oh my god that, that's my period like i really like i i knew a lot about that period i'm really excited about reading that because that's the period i really 
was full into comics by then. I got into comics late for a kid. I was like 13, 14 years old. I wasn't a five-year-old reading comics. I was a 15-year-old already feeling kind of ostracized from other people because people weren't reading comics when they're 15 years old when, you know, in the, in the late 90s. Uh, people were getting out of comics and people thought comics were passe. And, you know, I remember my dad cutting out uh, from, the, from the newspaper the article about how Marvel was going bankrupt and all, you know, you probably weren't going to be able to get new comics anymore. I'm like, oh my God, no. <laughs> so, you know, it's, anyways, I, I love everything that you're publishing and everything that you put together because it does create this nice historical record. The one thing, actually, I put out a call for questions for you. And the one thing people asked for is that, would there be any kind of index that you guys could put out so you could easily find some of these interviews because you have these beautiful interviews, but they're sometimes scattered amongst various different magazines like Back Issue, et cetera. And people, the only question people had was, is there some way that we can at least know which magazines we have to pull out so we can kind of find all of it? Because they love the material. They just want to be able to index it. Well, the simple answer to that is there is a way. It's not the most elegant way, but you just go to our website, tomorrows.com, and that's T-W-O-M-O-R-R-O-W-S.com. Mm-hmm. And on the, I think it's on the left-hand side column, there's a little search box. And if you're looking for Neil Adams, type Neil Adams in there and search, and it will pop up every one of our publications that has – uh, Neil Adams in it. Um, so there you go. Uh, of course, it, that doesn't help much if you type the words Jack Kirby because it's going to pop up, you know, half of our output probably. I'm, I'm exaggerating a little, but not much. Um, so, um, but that's that's the simple way. Now, we do have, like for instance, I have my own in-house index of which pieces of Jack Kirby art I've used and where, what magazine, what page, um, and, and whether it's in pencil or ink or color. That's one I have to keep so I don't duplicate material after 85 issues of the Jack Kirby book. <laughs> um, so, but that's not anything that's published out there for, for anybody's use. Um, we did have a couple of fans that offered to index. Oh, really? Well, person was on an index back issue, and I think they got through about 80 issues. Wow. And then something happened, and it never got completed or something. I'll have to, I'll have to check with Michael Urey, the editor on that, to see if he has something um that's the kind of thing we would gladly make available just for free for anybody can download from our website because i mean it's a smart marketing tool right if if you know what's in the publications you might be more inclined to buy them all so otherwise you could just kind of look at the you know that search tool at our website it helps and otherwise you just kind of read the descriptions and stuff but Mm -hmm. um but what you said about being nervous every time you do an interview don't feel bad because that's just how it is. And uh, I, I know when I started this, when I did that sixth issue of the Kirby Collector where I was going to get to the bottom of what happened in the fourth world, I had to interview um, the two guys whose names I had seen on all the Jack Kirby letter columns in those New Gods books, Mark Evanier and Steve Sherman. Mm-hmm. And I remember as a kid reading those books and going like, man – those guys are Jack Kirby's assistants. That's got to be the best job in the world to get a for Jack Kirby. I so wanted to be one of those guys, right? And um, then I had to track them down and actually call them up. Oh, Mr. Evanier, oh, you don't know me, but I, I kind of was wondering if you'd be willing to do an interview and tell me all the secrets of Jack Kirby's fourth world that <laughs> people don't know and stuff like that. And I'm like, he's not going to do it. And he's like, sure. And, uh, and Steve Sherman, who sadly, Steve was just this best guy and he passed away this past year um but steve was always from the very first time i called him up was so kind and helpful and generous with his time um when we went to our first comic-con as an exhibitor when we first set up our little booth with our little six issues of the jack Kirby collector and that's all we had um steve invited us up to uh, hollywood to visit his puppet studio 
because he was a professional uh, puppeteer and they had their own studio and he worked on a lot of a lot of big films and things. He did the if you remember those little worm alien guys in Men in Black that were smoking cigarettes and drinking right. coffee. That's Steve under there working the puppets on those. Um, he did uh, he he did some of the puppetry for the Mighty Joe Young movie, uh, Pee Wee's Playhouse. Wow. Um, what else? Uh, I, I, I'm drawing a little blank right now, but I just completed a Steve Sherman tribute issue of the Jack Kirby Collector, um, which that's issue 84. That's the one that's on the way back in the printer now. And um, Steve, Steve, Steve was so great, and Mark continues to be so great. I had a hour and 15 minute conversation with Mark yesterday. Um, uh, my uh, my my book. Okay, my new book. It's called Old Gods and New. It's the companion to Jack Kirby's Fourth World. That's the 80th issue of the Jack Kirby Collector, but I did it as a double-sized book. Mm-hmm. That was nominated for an Eisner Award this year for Best Book. So um, it's up against very stiff competition, but I can't be at the Eisner ceremony this year. So I asked Mark if he would um, accept the award on the off chance that it actually wins, and he said sure. And we, you know, when, when you get talking to Mark, you are in for an entertaining time. He, <laughs> I, I don't know if you've ever interviewed him. It, uh, but just on a personal level, he has such a broad range of history in the comics industry, but also in the entertainment industry. Mm-hmm. Um, an interesting, odd little tidbit that came out of our conversation. There's this guy, uh, Jim Varney. He's a comedian, and he did a character named Ernest. I don't know. Oh, yeah. It's maybe before your time, but he's like, hey, Vern, how's it going, Vern? Oh, I remember Ernest. Ernest. Absolutely. Okay. So that's Jim Varney. Uh, Mark worked with him on a couple of TV specials and things like that. And. Jim Varney was a huge Steve Ditko fan. Really? I just find that that's that's a kind of fascinating minutia that I just live for. You know, it's like really Vern. Hey Vern, he was a was a Steve Ditko fan. So, and uh, and I asked him, was he a Kirby fan? And Mark was like, yeah, he liked Kirby, but it wasn't his main thing. His main thing was Steve Ditko. <laughs> um, Mark, if you're out there, I'm telling tales out of school. Maybe you were saving that for a, for a blog post or something. But um, hopefully, he'll elaborate on it somewhere. Uh, but that's another thing. Mark was just so nice, not knowing me. I just came out of the blue and asked for an interview, and he just spilled his guts to me because he loves Jack Kirby and he loves comics. Mm-hmm. And um, and to this day, here, here I am, those guys that I wanted to have their dream job. And now, you know, I know them, and you, you spend enough time doing this, you've been doing it 10 years. Mm-hmm. Uh, if you get nervous, that's okay. My very first appearance on a Jack Kirby tribute panel. I think that was in 1996 at Comic-Con. Oh, wow. And I said three words, I think, the whole panel. I was just awestruck and dumbfounded and like, ah, why, why do they have me up here? I'm, I, I, who's on that panel? I think Mike Royer was on it. Marie Severin was on it, I think. Um, somebody else. Uh, someone very highly regarded in the comics field, and I'm drawing a blank. But And, and me, and, I'm like, and Mark was moderating it, and it was just like, yeah, I'm deer in the headlights. I have no business being up here, right? You know, now it's like okay, I can do panels all day long and not not freak out. But yeah. uh, it's no, no, you know, people they they want they love being appreciated. That's what's so great. And guys like you and me and John Cook and Michael Yuri and Roy can facilitate that them being celebrated. Mm-hmm. And you know, it's it's just a great thing. I just it is though so sad that so many of them are getting so much older or have passed on. For sure. Um, so anyway, I'm blabbing on. Go ahead. No, that's okay. Um, well, I just want to ask a question about about working with Roy. Like when 
again, when you start working with Roy and he's, you know, kind of revives alter ego, like uh, how long did it take you to be able to kind of separate the, the fanboy inside being like, Oh my God, this is Roy Thomas from the, you know, I'm working with Roy. He's someone I'm working with. We're collaborating. We're working on projects. Like, are, do you still feel that inner fan who sometimes geeks out every time you talk to him or did are you I- able to separate it? With Roy, I can separate it now because it's been so many years and we've had so much interaction over the years and we've had dinner at San Diego several times and uh, he's in South Carolina, I'm in North Carolina, so we do cross paths in person at HeroesCon, which was actually last weekend and I couldn't go, unfortunately, but um, but Roy was there and um, our assistant, Eric Nolan Wellington, was there and he he deals with Roy all the time and I think Eric still gets a little bit of a geek factor out of it. you know, I mean, I, I talked to Roy and we not not that we have I don't think we've ever had a crossword with each other in what has it been 25 years since we since he relaunched Alter Ego, um, you know, but we have our differences of opinion and we respectfully talk them out. And I tell Roy when I think his cover design is less than ideal um, or uh, and, you know, or his subject matter is like not going to work. Um, and he takes it under advisement, but it, that is his magazine. He, he started it in 19, well, Jerry Bale started it in 1963, I think, mm-hmm. and then Roy took it over. So, you know, um, it, it, the, the beauty of this stuff is, in the same way with John Cook, when John came to me wanting to do a book on John Severin, I'm like, John, I love John Severin's work, but, you know, people think of him as the cracked guy mm-hmm. and uh, did, did a lot of humor work. I'm just not sure there's a commercial market for John Severin now. They're all he had a much more storied career than that. That's what the general public that knows who he is would think of. And he's like, no, no, you got to trust me. The fans are out there, and we got to do this. And I'm like, well, John's never steered me wrong. Well, except for once. Um, uh, <laughs> only once did he have a project that didn't live up to expectations. Um, although I think we both knew going in it was going to, so I will let that rest. But um, John's, John's really never steered me wrong, and that uh, – and, and sure enough, we did this beautiful John Severin book, and it's been super well received. Um, so, you know, the, the, these guys, do we geek out? I don't geek out with Roy because I've worked with him for so long. Mm-hmm. But sometimes I'm still kind of, I sit back and go like, wow, I'm sitting here talking to Roy, Roy freaking Thomas. That's pretty cool. <laughs> so, um, and it's pretty cool that Roy is still just plugging away doing this stuff. He is the biggest comics fan there is. Mm-hmm. That's the thing, you know. You, if he'd never worked in comics, it wouldn't matter. He'd still be doing alter ego, I'm sure. <laughs> um, so, and that's pretty impressive after his great comics career that he still wants to do. It's just a glorified fanzine, you know. Mm. It's on nicer paper and with better design, <laughs> and better production values, and better editing, and better, you know, everything. But it's still a fanzine, and but you know that that's Roy. Roy, Roy is such a big fan. So. A question about Roy, but I mean, more about Stuff Said, actually, is that, you know, obviously, as you kind of laid out at the beginning of Stuff Said, I mean, you are Team Kirby, ultimately, um, although you try to, you know, as you said, kind of have a, a fair representation of what both men were saying throughout the years about their collaborations, etc. Knowing that, you know, Roy does feel like more of a Team Stan player, did you guys ever have any conversations about Stuff Said or, you know, what that was we, doing? We have had respectful discussions about <laughs> Lee and Kirby. Um, I not to put you on the spot. No, it's nothing that would ever fracture our relationship. I don't think Roy is. Roy comes at it from a writer standpoint because that's what he is, mm-hmm. and I think he can have 
an extra level of appreciation or respect or whatever you want to call it for the um, for for the wordsmiths uh, side of that collaboration. I come from more of a graphics background, plus plus also. I mean, I idolized Jack Kirby. I never idolized Stan Lee. I had a, 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 an, an admiration for Stan because he was Stan. Mm-hmm. But, you know, so and, – and Roy worked for Stan as his right-hand man, so had an, had an uh, idolization going on there, I think. So, um, you know, also – but Roy's very realistic about Stan. A lot of our discussions, you know, and even in his own publication, Stan was no – Stan wasn't perfect by any means even in Roy's estimation you know Mm -hmm. Um, same thing Kirby wasn't perfect Uh, they're they're just people you know they have faults but um, no I I, I would think Roy once said I don't think this is speaking at school Roy once said to me in one of our discussions about it that um, he he said he he can see it as an equal collaboration but he would probably say 51% Stan and 49% Jack Mm -hmm. uh, for what they did together if someone as close to Stan as Roy was can say that, I have to respect that. Um, I, I still may not agree with it, but I have to respect it. And Roy is, Roy is a consummate professional, not just in never having missed a deadline on Alter Ego and what are we up to 178 issues now, um, but just just in how he treats other people. I mean, Roy, Roy, Roy is a, a, a true, true professional through and through. And even if we have a difference of opinion on something i can still respect roy and work with him and it's really it's never been an issue in our working relationship or at least not for my end maybe roy's holding some secret you know grudge against me um <laughs> kirby I, I don't think so but roy has a, 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 a huge respect for jack kirby as well i just think it's a question of the whole um issue of what collaboration is when they work together and who did what where we have some differences of opinion but no, that makes the world go round. There's, sure. there's lots of people there. This is an odd question, and I don't mean to, I don't mean to put a value judgment on it, but when obviously this year has been a rough one, as you said, because you had Neil Adams, George Perez, and Tim Sale passing away in relatively short measure. Which one do you think was the biggest loss for the industry as it is now? Um, which as, again, as it is now, yes, and I, and again, that's a weird question because George had retired, Neil was obviously much older, uh, and Tim hadn't put out a lot of work recently. But which one do you think was more of a because like, they're big losses, regardless? And I don't want to make it sound like yes. either one of them was yes. not a big loss. Like every every single one was hard to take in and very difficult and sad. Well. I, it would have been easier for me to answer that question if you hadn't put the little tagline on the end of at, in the in the industry now, because hmm. um, that that's very different than which was the biggest loss. Sure. Um, and honestly, I'll be honest, I, I, I don't understand the industry now. Hmm. I really don't. Um, it, it, it's it's kind of left me behind, and I think it's left most of our tomorrow's readers behind too. Hmm. Um, there's just not much out there being published that I care to read. Uh, and for the prices things cost now, I can buy a beat up back issue of some 1970s or 60s comic and probably get more enjoyment out of that mm. than some of the new stuff. Um, so I hate to sound like I'm an old fossil, but that's just kind of how I am. And, and I would dare say the vast majority of our readers feel the same way. Um, but not all of them. Some are, are very still actively involved in, mm-hmm. in comics. One thing I like about having Eric Nolan Wellington around here in the office is um, he is younger than me and he is more in tune with what's going on and he can kind of keep me 
plugged into, oh, hey, there's this new guy. Um, <laughs> Eric, Eric did the, uh, he spearheaded our Modern Masters line of books and introduced me to a couple of people whose work I'd never seen before. Um, at the same time, I discovered for the first time Cliff Chang's work, mm-hmm. and Eric had never thought of doing a book on him. And I came back from a Comic-Con where I'd seen a lot of Cliff's work, and I was like, this guy is amazing. You need to make him a Modern Masters uh, subject. And, and he knew his work. He just hadn't considered doing a book with him. And mm-hmm. so and uh, I think that was a great book. Um, so you know, there, so how, how do you gauge the talent levels between Tim Sale and George Perez and Neil Adams? I, I don't think it's possible to compare them. No. Um, Neil was a juggernaut in the industry in – but in a lot of different ways beyond just his amazing art abilities. For sure. So um, George was a universally beloved person in comics who was supremely talented and also came in with a style that shouldn't have worked in comics, I think. Mm. Um, he had this ultra scratchy little ink line and this super detailed and all these busy panels with a million characters in it that it just, in theory, shouldn't have worked. When comics are all about big splash pages with giant fists coming at you, um, but it did, and he grew on people very quickly, including me. And they came to love that about him. It's like, oh, if you're going to do a big team up, we'll get George Perez because he can draw any character great. Um, and then, of course, Crisis on Infinite Earths came along, and that was like Perez Wonderland. I mean, it just who else could have done the job he did on that book? Um, Tim Sale's work, I'm not as well versed in. But I do have a strong appreciation of it. Um, so, and with him being the newer of those three, I guess he might get the nod as the answer to your question. Mm. Um, he certainly was involved in some very pivotal books. So, um, but you know, all three were involved in very pivotal books, just at different time frames. So, you know, I, I think there's room to praise all three as being very important in comics history. So. Mm-hmm. Um, a weird. Uh, I have a weird comment, but because you're, you're you're talking about how you felt that at times, you know, comics have left you behind, or they just they've changed, and you kind of get more enjoyment of some of this classic stuff. I was looking through, like, just some of the you know epic collections that Marvel puts out of you know seventies material, etc. And it really struck me. And this is a weird comment, and I know that, but I kind of miss old school coloring. Like, I know coloring is better now, but there's just something about the four color process that kind of drew my eye more. And when I look at more modern stuff, I know instinctively like they're using better palettes, et cetera, but there's just something about, I don't want to say the garishness, but there's just something about that four color palette that really kind of makes me feel like there's a warmth of the comic that I want to read it. And I don't know if that makes any sense. It, it makes perfect sense. And I want to preface what I am about to say as I do not mean any disrespect toward Neil Adams with this. Okay. Um, Neil was, after Jack Kirby and Will Eisner, and he might be before Will Eisner, in my estimation, are is one of the top three um, for for me personally in comics history, um, so, or just in my personal appreciation of comics. It would probably go. I mean, it would go. Yeah, it would go Kirby, Adams, Eisner, but it might be Kirby, Eisner, Adams. I don't know. Kirby's always number one, but the, the, <laughs> Adams and Eisner would somewhere be two and three. Okay. So that said, Neil was for some inexplicable reason just enamored of that over rendered airbrush coloring and it so it would at times overpower Neil's own beautiful beautiful artwork mm-hmm. and it's like I'm buying a Neil Adams book to see Neil's 
beautiful renderings, not to see some airbrush colorist that that's you know Neil has such intricate and exquisite line work in his in his art, and when all this these color effects are going on, it's just it's too much for me. It's it just detracts from the beautiful artwork that Neil did, mm-hmm. um, and to me it takes me out of the story also. Um, so and, and Neil was a just incredible storyteller in, in addition to being an incredible artist and it didn't need all that the more simple coloring I think on Neil's very detailed elaborate artwork works better mm-hmm. if they weren't at odds with each other with the coloring um, so but Neil was really fond of that stuff all the stuff coming out of continuity was just really heavily colored like that and mm-hmm. You know, nothing got out of continuity without Neil's approval, so he liked it. So, you know, Neil and I would have a different, we have a different opinion on what was the better way to color Neil's work, obviously. You know, who am I to tell Neil Adams how to color his work, right? But, <laughs> but, you know, also a lot of people loved, on Neil, they loved Tom Palmer's inking best of all. They thought Tom was his best inker. And I can respect that opinion, but I just thought Dick Giordano brought a little, some a certain little Christmas crispness to Neil's work and I like Dick's inking on Neil better than Tom Palmer's inking on Neil or better than Neil's own inking on Neil mm. Neil liked Neil's inking on Neil obviously that's his own <laughs> and I, I suspect he liked Palmer better than Giordano even though Neil and Dick Giordano were partners in continuity for some time there mm-hmm. um, so I don't know you know these are the kind of fanboy uh, uh, questions that we bring up and try to try to argue over Mm-hmm. It's all in fun. Yeah, you know, it's still all beautiful work. Oh, for sure. Uh, so um, e- even with the over-rendered color, it was still beautiful work. I just think it would have been more beautiful with simple coloring. So, so but I'm with you on that, 100. percent Do you? So, I mean, IDW obviously puts out a lot of these beautiful artist editions. How many do you own? Do you own any? Um, I'm looking right now. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight. I've got eight Jack Kirby ones here. Okay. Um, those are the only ones I have. Now, that doesn't mean I don't want some of the others. Mm-hmm. Um, particularly, like, some of the Stranko editions, I really want to get. Yeah. But also, again, this is just me. They're, uh, they're beautiful, wonderful projects. But um, I'm not as enamored with seeing page after page of original art reproductions as some people are. And I maybe I'm just weird that way. Mm. Um, you know, it, it, even the Kirby ones I have, I look at them, and it's really cool to see it, but... After after a couple stories worth of original art pages, I'm like, uh, I'm not reading them as a story. Mm. I'm appreciating them as an artifact. And some of the pages don't have that much interest for me as an artifact. They might have a little white out here or there, or some, mm. you know, some blue line that scribble note that somebody said. But um, you know, I don't find them conducive to read as a story in that way. So, but that, I have a huge admiration for Scott Dunbeer and doing those things and just tracking down that art. Oh, yeah. I know how hard that is to do for some of the projects we've tried to do. So, um, more power to them. And they're beautiful, beautiful presentations. I mean, I, I'm glad they're doing them. And they must be doing well for them as a publisher because they keep putting them out. Um, so, and yeah, I would love it if somebody out there just has a couple of spare Storanko ones that they just want to unload, they want to send my way. Hey, I would gladly accept them. So, don't get me wrong <laughs> on that. Um, Stranko, that's another one. What an amazing, talented, and complex human being who had this very short but just cataclysmic effect on the comics industry mm-hmm. with his style. Um, 
and I have all my Stranger comics still. A couple of them I got signed from him at my first major comics convention in Atlanta, Georgia, uh, and I still have those. And um, just love the guy's work. I mean, he, he, he brought a level of graphic design to comics that I'd never seen before, sure. as well as own, his own rendering. In fact, I, you know, you could make the argument Stranko's actual rendering isn't it, – it's great, but it's not that great. But it's the style that sells it. Mm-hmm. And it's his sense of design that is so impeccable and amazing and well thought out. And anyone who's a graphic designer can look at his work and see the amount of thought and and just sweat that went into every page he designed. Mm-hmm. He wasn't just about drawing a muscled figure with a fist coming at you. He was going to set it up in a scene, in a setting, in, in a layout that is going to tell part of the story mm-hmm. as much as the actual figure does itself. Uh, and that that's what's... Now, Stranko would be probably number four on my list after Eisner and Adams. So, um, and who knows? I need to get some Stranko stuff back out and reread it, and I, that might move back up to the three or two slot. I don't know. But, no no oh. Ditko in that top four? I've never been a huge Ditko guy. I have an uh, utmost, utmost respect for Steve's stuff. Um, but it never, it just, it never spoke to me the way some of this other stuff did. Mm. So, but again, no, no offense meant to Ditko fans, and there's a lot of them out there. Oh, sure. We put him in their number one spot. So, yeah. so I have to let you go soon because we've already had you an hour. But I did have some uh, questions that came in from listeners who just had some questions for you. If we can go through a quick lightning round, if you're up for it, go for it. All right. Uh, so this is from one person. He said, uh, "When is the Jim Aparo book coming out, or is it still coming out?" <laughs> I could have guessed that was going to be one of the questions. That one and the Darwin Cook book. Those are the two that people are going to ask. Oh, about. there's um, a question about Darwin Cook later. Absolutely. Yeah. Okay. Uh, the Jim Aparo book, which we first announced in 2006, um, has hit a million roadblocks. Unfortunately, the mm. first of which was Mr. Aparo, like some we were talking about, uh, passing away right after we signed the agreement to do it. Mm. So could not conduct the main interview with him. Aparo didn't give a lot of good interviews, and the ones uh, the ones he did are very short. Um, so it's been a, a challenge to get that together. That said, the various authors that have worked on the book have had various, I won't even go into details, but lots of personal issues that have kept them from getting the work done on the book. So I'm not going to make you promise that the book's going to be out anytime soon, but I do still have expectation that it will be out, and uh, hopefully sooner rather than later. So sorry I can't give you a more That's okay. Now, this next question feels actually it might be more of a Keith Dallas question, but uh, when is the hardcover American, American Comic Chronicles in 1945-49? When is that one coming out? Actually, he's asking about the late 60s. Oh, the late 60s. What, what are they asking? Just when is, the, when is the late 60s coming out? The late 60s? No, they must mean late 40s. Late 60s okay. has been out for... I was yeah, going to say, wait a minute, that's already out, yeah. Yeah, that's the, the 1945 to 49 edition. Okay. That's got to be what they're talking about. Okay. Um... um Kurt Mitchell is, he's got a couple chapters pretty much wrapped. It's five chapters, one for each year mm-hmm. of that five-year period. So he's got a couple of them wrapped up now. Um, Keith can, as the editor of the book, can give you a lot more details on the specifics of things. But um, we're still shooting to have that one out next spring. Mm-hmm. That's what we're shooting for. So um, if Kurt can, Kurt's had a couple of uh, personal issues that took him off the book originally. Mm-hmm. Um, but Kurt's the guy to do this book. There's not We can't just plop some guy off the street in and have them know the history of comics 1945-49 that is a really complicated historical era because not much has been written about it no. um, you know the early 40s the, the golden age world war II stuff there's tons of research and material to draw from mm-hmm. but that's a lot more nebulous and harder to research that 45-49 period 
but we are shooting to have that out next year. Okay. What about the what about the two thousands? Is there any projected date um, on that? I, I haven't talked to Keith recently about how that's progressing. Um, that's one that we, we we're focused on getting that forty five to forty nine volume out because that's got a big hole in the line, right? We've got oh, yeah. nineteen forty up to nineteen nineties, and that hole is there. Yeah. We want to fill that gap first. We're, we're also working on a thirties volume. It's going to be a, sh- a small, uh, much shorter book because mm. other than you know Action One and Detective Twenty Seven and thirty eight nineteen thirty eight thirty nine, um, actual comics there wasn't that much coming out in the 30s so mm-hmm. um, there's a lot of pulp stuff that was the precursors and all that and that'll be covered historically but that'll be probably about half the size of a normal volume um, to do a 1930s volume so. so I have a personal question and this is more like I, I felt like I came late into the game into getting these volumes and so I remember a year or two ago when I was talking to Keith about it I could not for the life of me track down a volume of the 70s um, it's interesting like some volumes just kind of disappear out of print what happened to the 70s? Why is that not more It sold more out. Um, we reprinted it about six months ago, and it's back in print, so it, it is available. Okay, because I was trying to find it. Right I, now, I finally right now, got a copy. All are available again. We, put them, we got yeah. them all back in print. I finally was able to track down a copy, but it still cost me a bit more than the than cover. But I was like, you know what? I don't know if I'll be able to get this again, so I need to get this in my in my library as fast as possible. Well, it is available. The reprint, the new printing is more expensive than the old because printing prices and freight and everything's gone up since then. Sure. I will warn viewers, readers, um, listeners, whatever, um, that the 65 to 69 volume, the late 60s volume, will probably be selling out very shortly. Okay. Um, and we won't immediately put it back in print. Uh, so if anybody's missing that one, they might want to pick it up sooner rather than later. What was I, I think I already know the answer because I did talk to Keith about this, but now I'm forgetting the answer. What was the discussion like with Keith about kind of putting together this series of books? I mean, they're, first of all, they're beautiful books uh, that you guys are publishing about, you know, kind of chronicling the American comic book. But like, what was that discussion like about even kind of greenlighting this project and moving forward? Um, I, I'm going to give you the very quick answer, and I hope I have this correct. Keith will correct me. I believe Keith came to me and said, Mr. Morrow, I would like to do a book for you on the 1980s. And I said, Mr. Dallas, I would like for you to spearhead an entire line doing every decade of comics, including the 1980s. And, uh, uh, and Keith said, um, foolishly said, well, okay, if you think I'm up for that, I'm like, sure. <laughs> So, uh, and Keith has done a wonderful job as editor on that series. And keeping the consistency, having different authors, mm-hmm. including Keith being one of them, on the different decades of the American Comic Book Chronicles series, it, it, that's a challenge to keep the consistency, but it, not just from book to book. So one seamlessly flows from uh, where one book ends to the next volume starts up. But also because of the release schedule on those have been all over the place. I think the Mm -hmm. 80s was the first volume. And then we did 1960 to 64. And then we did 1965 to 69. And then we did 1950s. And then we did 70s. And then we did 90s. And then we did 40 to 44. And it's it's still – Keith's kept them all consistent so that even though they came out in in a random sort of order – if you read them from the 1940s volume up to the 90s, with the exception of that hole that we're about to fill, um, yeah. it reads as one very cohesive, consistent experience mm-hmm. from from volume to volume. And you're not necessarily aware that different authors were working on each volume. So, 
No, you're right. A lot of consistency. So yay, there. Keith. Good job, Keith. Absolutely. Uh, going back to questions from listeners before I can let you go, hopefully soon. Um, any ch- uh, actually, this was a question about the index for Alter Ego, so I'll actually go past that. Uh, any chance of a reprint of the Warren Companion? Oh, I knew that would be another question, too, because we get that question all the time. Um, <laughs> Jim Warren, if you're listening, sign the daggum agreement. That's all I got to say. Jim, Jim <laughs> loves to – Jim is – not the youngest guy, but you wouldn't know it. Um, <laughs> he's still sharp as a tack, and uh, Jim likes to frustrate people. So anyway, if Jim will ever sign the agreement, okay, which he's had for a long time, we will bring that baby right back. Not not an exact reprint. We're going to expand on it, okay, and make it basically worth buying all over again. So uh, John Cook is ready to go. I'm ready to go. We're just waiting on Jim. So um, if anyone out there has Jim's ear. Remind him he has an agreement to sign. So, all right. Uh, next question, and you kind of answered this one before. Any chance of something in depth on Dar- Darwin Cook? Um, well, Eric Nolan Wellington did the interview with Darwin before he passed away for that Modern Masters volume. Unfortunately, there's been a lot of roadblocks on that one since then too. Uh, the interview was done, and it's a great interview, um, and has not been used yet. So we are hopeful at some point to get it out. It, we probably won't do it as a Modern Masters, but we'd probably do it as an expand Darwin thing. Mm. Um, but there's other um, uh, legal and behind-the-scenes agreements that are keeping that from happening. So I'll just leave it at that. and Hopefully we can get those worked out and, and get some use for that. Perfect. Uh, another uh, listener asked, uh, Retro touches on toys occasionally, but why not a regular magazine devoted to action figures or toys? Well, there have been magazines like that, and um, we just think it's more fun to cover the broad range of fun stuff. Mm. Um, and then if you just do want action figures and toys, I mean, it's certainly possible. Um, but we've got to have the right person to spearhead that, to edit it, mm. and to compile it. And Michael Urie might even be the right person for that, but uh, he's he's full right now. He's got plenty to do, for sure. um, including his new book, The Team Up Companion, which is awesome. Uh, if you love team up books of the '70s and '80s, you know, World's Finest and its different variations, um, Marvel Team Up, Marvel Two in One. Um, what are the other ones covered in there? Um, I'm drawing a little blank here, but uh, all the books that featured team ups. It's this is such an exhaustively researched, in-depth thing. Like you, you must you got to really like them to enjoy this book, and it's it's awesome. It's at the printer now. Um, will be coming out. Um, I do want to thank anybody listening for their constant patience in these crazy times. Mm. You know, we print a lot of our stuff overseas, and it's now taking at least an extra thirty days more than it took two years ago to wow. get our stuff back from there it's a question of it takes the same amount of time to ship from our overseas port to here but once it gets here the question is getting it through customs getting it through the ports to a warehouse and then getting truckers because there's still a freight shortage all over the country getting a trucker to pick it up and then take it to whatever warehouse they then uh, distribute it to us Mm -hmm. uh, on another truck and um, so that's the thing if you're on our website and see how they've changed the release dates again they pushed them back on things that's why it's not that we didn't send it to the printer on time um, we we our guys we crack the whip and they get their stuff out on time uh, and, and we have our schedule we've expanded our schedules we've added a month to all of our schedules over the last nine months we gradually increased that to hopefully compensate for that but it's just crazy you know and I know we had two issues a back issue 
one that shipment was very late. That was number one thirty five, and so it got here four weeks late, five weeks late, and then issue one thirty six got here right on time, and so we ended up shipping two consecutive issues back issues like two weeks apart. Mm. So um, and people are thinking. Some of the people are thinking, wow, look how fast they're getting the issues out. And others are thinking, man, it's been forever since that, that person showed up. So, um, you know, it, it's it's a challenging time to be a publisher. But we're, you know, we're doing the best we can, and we got some very patient customers, thankfully. So, For sure. But we are doing our work, and we're doing our work on time. <laughs> it's just, you know, we have factors we can't control. So. So I got these are a little bit longer, so I'm gonna try to go through them pretty fast. Um, one listener asked, "Is it ever going to be possible to publish a complete Kirby work in pencils in conjunction with Marvel or DC, a hardcover collection of New Gods or FF issues, for example, from the Xerox's own file? Perhaps only the word balloons might need to be redone. Is anything in the works outside of the Jack Kirby Collector magazine?" Um, well, I mentioned that Destroyer Duck Graphite, which is basically exactly what they're talking about. It's mm-hmm. the entire Destroyer Duck run because we do – that was done in the 80s, and Jack had copies of pretty much every page of his pencils from that. Um, so it's a question of we have to go in and re-letter Steve Gerber's lettering over the pencil art so you can actually read it as a story. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's labor-intensive, but it's doable. We did the same thing with Kirby's Silver Star. Mm-hmm. Uh, we did a graphite edition of that and a graphite edition of the first – issues of Kirby's Captain Victory as well. Again, because the Xeroxes of the photocopies, the, I'm sorry, the photocopies of Jack's pencil already existed. With the New God stuff, Jack didn't get his copier until about the fourth issue of each of the Fourth World books. Mm. So the first three issues, there's no photocopies of the pencils. With a, There's a rare, like, the pencils for the cover Forever People number one, there's a stat of a partially inked pencil version, and we've run that in the Jack Kirby Collector. Um, the two-page spread from the first Jimmy Olsen issue, uh, there is a partially inked photocopy of that around. But just that's the two-page spread, not the rest of the issue. So mm-hmm. um, Most of the issues from about the fourth one on exist uh, in pencil form. Um, so there's some random pages missing because things got misplaced or sent somewhere and never sent back over the years. Um, you know, someone may have had possession of some and didn't take good care of them or something like that. So um, the Jack Kirby Museum, I'm going to plug that, www.kirbymuseum.org. The most wonderful, uh, I was one of the original trustees of it. I've had to step back just for time commitment reasons. But Rand Hoppy and Tom Kraft are still doing doing the good work there. Of They go to every convention they can and bring their giant format scanner and scan people's original art front and back in super high resolution so that the very thing you're talking about, the IDW um, books, right? It's it's like scan quality for that. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and archiving every page of Kirby art they can, original art, published art, unpublished art, sketches. Um, that That's that's their goal in life, is to make sure that they have a, as complete a digital archive of Kirby's work as possible. They have possession of the Xeroxes now. Um, we used to have them, and I once the museum got up and going, I passed them on to them. Mm-hmm. Um, so, and, uh, you know, so... Conceivably, it could. I worked with DC on doing um, the Spirit was it? Uh, no, in the days of the mob uh, reprint book. Um, that was these black and white magazines that Kirby did that almost got no distribution and were canceled mm. after the first issue. But Jack had drawn a second issue, so uh, the second issue remained unpublished. I was able to track down most of the art for that and help DC put that together. So you know, a fourth world book like that is conceivable. Um, you know, maybe I'd love to work on it. 
that'd be great. But again, uh, that's one that DC's got to either license out to do for someone else to do or do it themselves. Mm-hmm. So um, we'll see. Um, and, and was that the only thing they were asking about? Just a fourth world. Uh, specifically there, they, well, they have a few questions so that they're all similar. Um, they said, similarly, what about a collection of Kirby splashes or covers in pencil or inked by alternate inkers? Um, well, let's see. Like the two-page spreads and a lot of Kirby stuff, he didn't Xerox the pencils of those. Mm. I think because they were a little oversized. Or if they did Xerox them, someone put all the two-page spreads together and they're somewhere lost. Mm. And uh, so, with very few exceptions, there's no photocopy record of the pencils of the two-page spreads. Um, most of the covers there are. I'm not sure there's – people have done various things of having people ink Kirby's pencils off as pencil Xeroxes before. We've done that with our Jack Ruby Collector covers on occasion just to get some cool combinations of a mm-hmm. inker over Kirby's pencil work. So, um, I'm not sure how much of a market there would be for an actual collection like that. Maybe there would be, but um, I don't know. That doesn't personally intrigue me that much. I, that's another thing. I'd like to see sporadic pieces of that, but I wouldn't want to see a whole book of that myself personally. Mm-hmm. Um, maybe if enough fans just clamor for it, we might consider it. But um, that's a lot of work, too, to track down that many inkers. Mm-hmm. I know how hard it is with these professionals' busy schedules to say, hey, could you ink a Kirby collector cover for us? Um, mm-hmm. And you got to give them up four months, six month lead times just so they can squeak it into their busy schedule. So, sure. Okay. Uh, another question Would Tomorrow's consider publishing nice illustrated artist indexes, uh, ex- exhaustive ones, they said in parentheses, on other artists in addition to the existing ones on Kirby and Wood? How about Neil Adams or John Buscema, for example? And uh, there are many other comic artist giants only secondary to the original two. We absolutely would. Now, here's the trick. Somebody out there got one compiled already, and we'll make it pretty and publish it and distribute it and all that. But um, sitting down and trying to do a from scratch a checklist of John Buscema's entire career—that's oh that's going to be quite a task. Yeah. Um, yeah. You know, we could do a Steranko one because Jim Jim came on first onto the scene and did how many did he thirty nine comics I think or something like that, mm-hmm. and then went off to make some serious money in the entertainment industry and doing movie posters and graphic design and, and his own publications and things like that. So, mm-hmm. um, but doing a John B. Sima checklist, that's, that's quite a tall order. Somebody out there though, some great fan probably has one or at least the starting point for one. So, Hey, get in touch. We would certainly consider it. Uh, another question. How about a book on the DC comics, imaginary tales with a full index and a book on DC comics, earth two tales. Um, well, that sounds like one that, uh, unless it were extremely sparse on imagery, would have to be licensed directly from DC. Mm-hmm. I'm not sure it would be a good fit for us that we could commercially make a success of it and afford the licensing fee. Mm. So that's that's a lot of the things I have to weigh when we decide on projects. So I would probably not pursue that one. Okay. Just for tomorrow's. That doesn't mean somebody else shouldn't do it. Maybe IDW would do a great job with that. I don't mm-hmm. know. Or DC could do it themselves. This band did say, sorry for all the questions, but you are the best publisher out there for our nostalgia comic book needs. Well, you know, I'm glad we've stuck around. I'm glad we've outlived some of our competitors that were not doing the same thing, but 
doing some stuff in the similar vein. Mm-hmm. I, I think that means we struck a chord with our readers, and I'm, I'm glad they've stuck with us for so many years. I had one last listener question, which was, what happened to the Corbin Spotlight Project? Gosh. <laughs> well, <laughs> let me just say that John Cook and I are both very disappointed that that ended up not happening. We thought we had an agreement that we didn't have. So I'll just leave it at that, and um, it's a shame because it was going to be a beautiful, beautiful project, and we we would not have announced it if we didn't think we had things nailed down the way we apparently didn't quite have them nailed down. So, um, you know, you make mistakes sometimes, and that's how it goes, and uh, it's disappointing. But um, but it's not like the Jim Opero book that mm. is just taking forever to get done. That, that one's not going to happen okay. unless something strange changes. So. So I'll, I'll, I'll switch topics to at least a happier one um, before we sign off, and which is, I guess, uh, a question for me, which would be, you know, obviously you've worked on so many beautiful projects uh, since founding Tomorrow's. Is what, I mean, besides the Jack Kirby Collector, which is obviously, you know, kind of um, you doing everything you can to honor the man, uh, you know, honor the king. Um, what, is there another project that you've worked on that you were just so thankful that you got, you got a chance to kind of put it out into the universe? Um, yes. Uh, one that shows how quirky I am. It's a book I did uh, two years ago called Jack Kirby's Dingbat Love. <laughs> um, if you've not seen this book, you are I'm serious, you're missing out on something amazing and wonderful. Um, Jack did these, he, those uh, like in the days of the mob, he also did a couple of other black and white magazines for DC in 1970 and 71 um, that DC just they commissioned him to do and then they didn't know what to do with them they didn't get him any decent distribution at all and they cancelled him after the first issue uh, and he'd already worked on the second issue in some instances so um, so yet in the days of the mob DC's done a reprint of that material um, he did Spirit World which the unused second issue materials ended up in Forbidden Tales of Dark Mansion and Weird Mystery Tales and they colored them and used them in DC Comics in the 70s so that's good but he also did a book on it's called True Divorce Cases which was like sort of the anti-romance comic uh, <laughs> of stories about people getting divorced instead of people falling in love and another one called Soul Love or Soul Romances the name kept changing uh, but it was uh, a, a romance book uh, about African American characters um, which of course who better in 1971 to do a book about you know uh, African Americans falling in love than this little short Jewish guy who draws superheroes punch but Jack had a long history in romance comics in the 50s I mean they made a boatload of money off of that and pioneered that whole genre in the 50s so I guess they figured okay um, the, the, he did the divorce book and one story in there featured um, an African American couple and when they decided to cancel that while it was still it was only penciled and hand lettered it wasn't inked yet. Um, they said, okay, well, we're going to skip that project, even though you finished it. Let's take that one story about the, the black couple and make a, a black romance book. And Jack's like, okay. And he did stories to build around that, and they were mostly inked as well. So you've got a divorce book and a black romance book. Um, and then you've got Dingbats of Danger Street, which had one Kirby story published in first issue special number six. Um and Jack had done two more stories of the Dingbats of Danger Street, which I have this this soft spot in my heart for Kirby's Kid Gang books. And I particularly love the Dingbats. So my goal, one of my goals from the beginning of doing the Kirby, somebody's got to get those unpublished Dingbat stories in print. Um, 
and I was able to work out an agreement with DC to let us do that. And so it's called Jack Kirby's Dingbat Love. And so it's got the two unpublished Dingbat stories, and both in pencil and in ink. It's got some great fold-out gatefold things. It's awesome. I had a good time doing the design on that. And it's also got the unpublished divorce book and from Jack's beautiful pencil work with some of the sexiest women he's ever drawn. If you think Kirby doesn't draw sexy women, you need to see this book. <laughs> um, it, it's... It's not Sue Storm he's drawn in there by any means. So, um, and um, but also the Black Romance book is in there. So, which is has some of the worst dialogue ever written for a comic. It's but it's like bulldogs. It's so bad it's good. You know, um, uh, it, it's uh, it, so you, you just have to read it to, to believe it. And it, it's just I love that package that we did. It this is beautiful hardcover and. Um, it's still available, and I'm very, very proud of that book. So, um, you know, who, who I'm sure DC worked out the agreement because they're like, well, we don't want to publish this stuff. There's no market for this, <laughs> right? And I'm like, aha, but I have a market for it. It's a small little niche market that, that by the Jack Kirby collector, but I, I can bring that market for this book, and it's done okay. So, um, and I'm, I'm very, very, yeah, That's that one has a soft spot, a special place in my heart for I mean, or, it makes uh, it makes sense that it would, right? I mean, it's it's cool that you can kind of bring something out that would otherwise be probably completely forgotten. And I'm sure even well, DC, DC was, was probably final, like, what? <laughs> yeah, it was the final unpublished complete Kirby stories ever mm. that he ever produced. Everything, every finished story he's ever done has been published up to now, except for those. Interesting. And so, um, how, how did you even get a hold of it? Over the years, we found um, Jack had photocopies of a little of it in his files. Uh, the original art, uh, a dealer had a couple of stories from it, and we were able to scan those. Um, there were photocopies floating around fans that had, I don't know where where the first fan got it, but there were occasional pages. <laughs> My only regret with that book, there were, uh, I'm trying to remember, it was either two or three pages of one story were missing. Oh. And I found where two of them were, and the people would never share them. And it just broke my heart. So what I said earlier about every comics fan is super generous. They, for whatever reasons, they didn't want to share it. So um, we ran it as a, an incomplete story. Thankfully, there were pages in the middle that didn't really affect understanding the story mm. of that one short story. So, um, And that was from the Black Romance comic. So, uh, you know, you win some, you lose some. But it's still, it's a great book and a great compilation mm-hmm. and great material that Kirby drew when he was at the absolute peak of his artistic talent. So um, even if the subject matter doesn't work for you, the beauty of his art will. You will love the stuff in there. So, And again, I love that. That, again, goes to the what I was talking about before, before about how you really add into the historical record and bringing something like that you know, in, in, out into the ether so that people can actually enjoy it. And again, so that Kirby collectors can really you know, be able to see something like that as special. Yeah, but I didn't just drop in on the planet in 1994 and know all of this history when I did the first issue of the Jack Kirby Collector. I knew almost none of it. <laughs> I just knew the basic stuff. I've acquired knowledge of this history over time from other fans, from Mark Evanier, who worked with the guy, and Steve Sherman, mm-hmm. from Jack's own family, his friends, other creators who knew Jack, You know, interviews that other people have done, and when somebody would talk about Jack, we'd pick up a piece of history from that mm-hmm. it's all been a constant evolutionary process of learning jack's history also learning the history of all the other people we're we're covering in our publications and it, it is it's an ongoing 
it's an ongoing project to document a comics history. We don't know it all yet, mm-hmm. and occasionally we get some wrong and have to correct it later. But um, I think our tracker is pretty good, though, overall. Um, we're, we're more adding as we go along as opposed to correcting as we go along. Mm-hmm. And uh, I, I hope we never stop learning new things, not just about Jack Kirby, but mm-hmm. good grief, Neil Adams' career. There's so much yet to be documented. Um, John Buscema, my gosh, what an amazing talent and what a lengthy career he's had. Um, and I'm just talking older older yeah. classic artists here, and they, there's so many newer artists that are making history today that will need to be documented. So. so I have a morbid question before I let you go. But like, so you bring up the idea that, you know, obviously as these people pass away, do you think that there are stories that will start to surface about these creators as they start to pass away that maybe weren't talked about while they're still alive and then there's an opportunity to oh. document that as well? It sounds really awkward, but I mean, it, it's no, natural. I, I know what you're saying. Yeah, uh, um, I, I think it's just, it's just natural and it can be kind of awkward. I think the best case of that is Stanley. Um, Stan was revered as though he's this, the best guy ever and everybody loves Stan and all this stuff. And even, I mean, even talking to Roy, you know, Roy worked for the guy. You, no one you ever worked for, you walk away going like, they never did anything that ticked me off, right? So, I mean, you work for somebody, you, you have disagreements, you know. I, it, it's just natural. So, and, and um, you know, we view it as, all oh, the chummy Marvel bullpen. They're all in this big room together, rubbing elbows, <laughs> drawing an ink. And here, I finished drawing this. Here, you ink this. Here, Marie, go color this. Hey, everybody, let's go have lunch, you know. And that's the persona that Stan promoted of how Marvel was. In reality, it was this little tiny room with a couple of desks in it, and all the artists worked at home, you know. Uh, they, they weren't all in there chumming together the way they portrayed it. Uh, and you know, yeah, stories come out. Hopefully, nothing horrible will come out. But you're gonna—it's just reality. We're human beings, and we're all flawed in some way or another. And um, you know, some less than ideal stories of Stan have come out since he's passed away. Things that maybe people didn't want to tackle about when he's around. But that's gonna happen. You know, I'm sure one day when I pass on, people are gonna have some stories about me. <laughs> um, it, it, you know, if they even care to talk about me at that point. But it, it's. You do the best you can while you're here. You try to make amends when you do something stupid or wrong or make a mistake. And you and, and that's all you can do. And, um, you know, we've, we've, in the course of our history, we've dealt with an awful lot of creators. And they are all just generous to a fault. We, we've ticked off a couple of them and tried to make amends to inadvertently ticked them off. Um, which which happens, you know. Um, and again, you just try to be as earnest and honest as you can about it, and apologize when you make a mistake, and celebrate them in the best you can. And that's what we tried to do for thirty years now, and we're still going to keep trying to do for hopefully another thirty. That'd be great. So, <laughs> when you bring up the uh, the idea of the Marvel bullpen, I mean, in some ways. Maybe that's Stanley's greatest creation is that this kind of myth of Marvel Comics because isn't that what so many people were drawn to? This idea that you know, as you said, that, that this this community that existed which didn't really exist. It it, it it's his it's his second greatest creation. His greatest create Stanley's greatest creation was Stanley because Stan <laughs> Stan created his own persona and he carried it through to the end. And I'm not to speak ill of Stan. 
anytime I needed some information or something, I could email Stan and he would answer pretty quickly. And he was always very helpful. And here's the guy doing the Jack Kirby magazine, and he was very helpful anytime I needed something. Mm-hmm. He could have taken umbrage that, oh, you're a Kirby supporter, and Kirby people don't like Stan Lee at times. You know, it wasn't anything like that at all. Um, so, you know, it was a, you could also argue Stan was doing it to foster his legacy. Mm-hmm. Uh, well, I, I want to make sure I get my side of the story in print um, for when I'm not here to talk about it anymore. You know, you, you could any kind of arguments about Stan being self-serving, and he was self-serving in a lot of ways. Um, he was also a kind person in a lot of ways. Uh, he was very complicated. Um, and I personally, what I know now about that, I don't know that I would have enjoyed working for Stan. Um, or at least if I were Jack Kirby, I don't think I would have enjoyed working for Stan. Mm-hmm. So many people that worked for Stan loved it, though. Um, but they weren't creating or co-creating with him and I think that's where the, the problem comes in and you know Wally Wood hated Stan uh, because he felt like Stan was expecting Wood to do all the creative work and then Stan would take all the credit for it and that's a lot of where Kirby was coming from too he, can, he really felt genuinely that he was contributing the lion's share of the creativity in that in that collaboration and that Stan was getting the lion's share of the credit because Stan was claiming it for himself mm-hmm. and there is a lot of validity to that uh, to that view based on the facts we know now and like the stuff said book it, it's, it lays it out as fairly and objectively as we can but you, I can't come away from that book as a reader um, without seeing that uh, Stan you really did Jack wrong in a lot of instances here and I'm not sure Jack did Stan wrong in any real instance no um, so you know but everybody that's what the book set up for everybody can read it for themselves and Form your own opinions. So, as you said, it's at the end of the day, it's a very complicated relationship. Regardless of who you may want, may or may, or may not want to support, it's very complicated. You know, maybe complicated is not the word, though. The only no. thing that complicates it is people's own attachment to each guy. Yeah, actually, um, you're, you're not wrong. If you if you look at it, if you could objectively present it to somebody, and I wish I I, I wish my wife would sit down and read it <laughs> because she could give me the most objective opinion of all. I think she would come away. Honestly, I think she would come away from that book going, wow, Stan was a real jerk. Mm-hmm. So, and that's not, I was not trying to pointedly make Stan look like a jerk. I was trying as objectively as possible to just brutally paint a portrayal of how Jack was and how Stan was, and in their own words, mm-hmm. what their relationship was like, and who claimed credit for what, when, and then how that claiming credit changed over time to claim different credit as time went on. Um, Which is what, what I really appreciated about your book is that how intricate it was in painting that picture. And again, as you said, like kind of chronologically showing like when certain interviews were happening and what was happening in context at, at the same time as these things, which is what really made me as a reader appreciate how much research that you did to, to put that together because it was so exhaustive and felt ex- like as a reader, almost times it felt exhausting to be like, how do you even, you know, find all the right quotes that, you know, to put the timeline of it so well put together is just uh, an enormous achievement. Well, thanks. And it was a ton of work. I was exhausted after that book. And after every issue of the Jack Kirby Collector, for about two weeks, I don't ever want to hear the name Jack Kirby again. And then I get my I get my mojo back, and I'm like, yeah, let me get back into this Kirby stuff, right? So I, I, need, I take a break after every issue. After that book, I took about a four-month break because I just couldn't deal with Stanley or Jack 
Kirby information anymore. I was fried. And uh, but my light bulb moment was uh, working on that book. In terms of a historian now, I see the key to uncovering all the mysteries is the timeline, baby. Put it all down in chronological order, and you will see all the puzzle pieces start fitting in, and you're like, wait, I never noticed this before. That sentence this person says, now that I realize when they're actually saying it, juxtaposed against what's going on around them, it's like it takes on a whole new meaning. Mm-hmm. And you're like, oh, now I see why that guy was upset when this person said this at the time they did with what was going on. It, gives, it paints a whole different picture. And since I did that book, I've really approached a lot of – I just did an article in the last Jack Kirby Collector uh, that I think will shine a light to a lot of people on what Kirby was going through um, in the late 50s when he was back at DC Comics. Mm. Because it's all put in context chronologically – and all of a sudden, things are coming to light. They're like, wow, DC brought out <laughs> a Thor character in Jimmy Olsen and Batman. This is before the Thor that we know now at Marvel. Mm-hmm. Uh, Kirby did one in, was it The Unexpected, one of the mystery books. He did a story that featured Thor in like 1957. And then after he got blacklisted at DC because of a dispute he had, DC started bringing out things that riffed on what Jack had done for them just to kind of take him off, it seems like. Mm. And when you put in chronological order, Thor's suddenly appearing in all these DC books. And that, I think, and I hope I made the point properly in my article, that that was the impetus for Jack to then use the, to come up with the Thor that we know now. Mm. I don't extend anything to do with that Thor. I just really don't. Because because you see the track record of Jack did Thor at DC, then all of a sudden DC boots Jack out and just to poke a finger in his eye bring back a Thor one that's visually identical to the version Jack drew in Batman and in Jimmy Olsen and you can you can almost hear Jack going oh you're going to use my Thor character well I'll show you how to do a Thor character and then he comes up with the one we've got now and he also riffed on something from one of their stories uh, uh, how the hammer you throw the hammer and it comes back hmm. that was from I think it was from the Batman story that DC did that Jack said I'll not only do Thor I'm going to rip you off uh, on my version it was like a little tit for tat thing going on there and it wasn't just in Thor uh, read my article I, I, it's, I, again that was some not as exhaustive research as stuff said but that was a lot of fun to track down the, the, mm-hmm. the breadcrumbs on that and put them all in chronological order and see uh, DC's jabbing at Jack oh Jack's jabbing back at DC <laughs> um, the, the, my favorite though one of the Tales of Suspense or Tales to Astonish uh, Atlas Monster Stories Jack did it was called I Am the Gorilla Man and this was when DC was putting gorillas on every freaking cover and um, Mort Weisinger was the editor on a lot of those books and Mort was the guy that Jack hated uh, and because Mort hated Jack so this is kind of a little jab I Am the Gorilla Man it was kind of a that kind of a little nasty insult to Mort so um, anyway it's a lot I had a lot of fun writing that article and, and and making connections there so sure well again john thank you so much for taking so much of your time today i think i said that it might be half an hour to 45 minutes and we've gone an hour 45 already so i'm hey, extre- you can be talking about kirby i'll never stop so <laughs> fair enough but uh, i'm extremely appreciative of your time and i really appreciate you coming on and uh, again your 
everything that your your publishing house puts out. I'm just such a huge fan, and you do add so much to the historical record. So I do really do appreciate it. Even if I'm maybe younger than some of your demographic, it's uh, I have always had a love of history and a love of comic books, and being able to see those two things merge so well under your stewardship is really a treat. So thank you so much. Well, thank you. It was an honor to be here.